This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, the things present and the things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank You for the opportunity to gather together to be refreshed by the teaching of Your Word. For as You have said, it is by Your Word that we are set free. It is through Your Word that we are sanctified. It is through Your Word that we learn who we are and who You are, and we learn about our so great salvation. We also learn about our tremendous spiritual life and how we may grow and advance. And this is done once again by means of Your Word, that we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word, the pure milk of the Word, just as a newborn baby cries out for its milk. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that we may be uh, challenged and refreshed by the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we continue our study of the first vision in the book. In this vision, John is on the Isle of Patmos. He has been exiled there, and he is preparing to worship on the Lord's day. And we read in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and co-participant in adversity, kingdom, endurance of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos because of the word of God, because of the testimony that is that is from Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, Write the things which you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to uh, Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then in verse 12 we see the vision. He says, I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, his head, and his hair were white as snow, uh, white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. Now, what we see in this image, as we've studied so far, is it is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ whose appearance is that of a judge. He's been purified. That's purification came at the cross. Not a purification of judgment for sin, but that in the cross as he was judged for our sin, there was this uh, related uh, purification preparation for him as a judge. Now his role as 
we know he's prophet, priest, and king. And his role as judge, though, for man is related to his humanity, not to his deity. Of course, he's judge as deity. But John 5, 21 tells us that God has committed all judgment to him so that we would be judged not by God, but by a peer, by someone who was tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. So that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're not being evaluated by someone who doesn't have a clue, so to speak, what went on in, in human experience. But we are evaluated by one who was tested in every point as we are. And he is prepared. And so this is the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, his clothing, the garment down to the feet, is that like a priest? But his purification, his head, his hair white like wool. Of course, we've gone through these. Each of these characteristics have a root in an Old Testament vision of God. And the, his hair, head and his hair white like wool, white as snow, is a picture that's applied also to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, in Daniel uh, chapter 7. His eyes like a flame of fire also is uh, indicated in the Old Testament. These are pictures of someone who is a judge, someone who stands in judgment. But Jesus is pictured as being in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we know from verse 21, or verse 20, that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And the picture is of Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the uh, one who has given birth to the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great high priest of the church. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is also the judge of the church. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is pictured here as ever moving in the midst of the churches during the church age because he has a, a goal and a task. Revelation 21 says that we are going to rule and reign with him as priests forever. So we think of, even in the millennial kingdom, we are serving as priests um, to God. And in preparation for that ruling and reigning function, Jesus Christ is working to purify us, to cleanse us in terms of ongoing or progressive sanctification during this life. This is the purpose of the Christian life. It's not just so you can be saved. As one person once said, it's not just fire insurance to keep you out of the lake of fire. It's life insurance to give you real abundant life, capacity for life, quality of life, so that we are prepared for ruling and reigning with him in eternity, so that once you begin to grow and advance in your spiritual life and get beyond spiritual infancy, you begin to realize that all of the circumstances, events in your life are ultimately designed by God in order to prepare you for your future role. You need to learn to live today in light of eternity. And so this is the picture of Jesus moving, being ever-present in the life of the church. And this is the background for understanding what will take place in the next two chapters. So we have him pictured here, and then John says in verse 16 that in his right hand he had seven stars. Those seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. And out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. This is not the Machira sword of the Word of God. This is the Romphia sword, the broad sword that is the sword that is associated with his judgment. 
His countenance is like the sun shining in all of its strength. See, the brilliance of this image, I mean, it's almost blinding. He's got white hair. He has uh, his legs, his lower legs, his calves, his feet are like this fine, bright, burnished bronze. We're not really even sure what the metal is, but it's refined and it's brilliant and it's shining or glowing. His countenance itself, his face is uh, so bright and white you can almost uh, not distinguish the features. It's like the sun shining in its strength, and it's so powerful. It is so confrontational that John, like Isaiah in the Old Testament and others who have been confronted with the presence of God, falls on his face. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me. Now this appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ is the last of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Liberal theology, that is, those who don't want to believe the literal and inerrant infallible witness of the Word of God, want to diminish or dilute the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see the influence of this in, in many of the movies that are made uh, about the life of Christ. They either don't depict the resurrection or if they do, what you hear is a disembodied voice speaking to the apostles. But they don't ever do an adequate job of representing the physical, bodily, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That he's not just some ephemeral ghost. He's not some mystical apparition. He is a, he has a resurrection body. And he has had victory over death. And of course we have studied that in detail in our study first hour on 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. But the resurrection of Christ is one of the most incredible evidences of his claims to deity and confirmations of his work on the cross. It validates all that he said about who he was and what he came to do. In fact, it was so revolutionary, so powerful, that these 11 disciples who had virtually scattered to the wind were cowering as in the corners and in the shadows, of fearful that they too would be arrested by the authorities and crucified, that within just a few days after seeing the resurrected Christ, within a few days of the crucifixion, they are no longer cowards, they're no longer fearful, they're no longer scared because their world has been turned upside down. They've seen a man who conquered death and they know that there is no longer anything to fear. For them, resurrection is now the reality of their existence. Now there were a number of times that Jesus revealed himself in these post-resurrection appearances. It's not just that he had this uh, one appearance to the disciples, but he appeared to over 500 uh, in, in these appearances, and there were over 17 uh, different post-resurrection appearances. So let's just review these. First of all, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene that resurrection Sunday morning, given in Mark 19, 9 and 11, and John 20, verses 11 through 17. The first person he appeared to was Mary Magdalene, not because... She was his wife, like that heretical book, The Da Vinci Code, claims. Not for any other reason other than she was one of his most devoted followers, 
And unlike the disciples, she wasn't hiding. She was concerned about taking care of the body in the tomb. So she is one of the first to show up at the tomb. Then he appeared, secondly, he appeared to the other women. Uh, Matthew 28, 9 and 10, there were other women who came to the tomb. There's tremendous contrast here between the courage of the women to go to the tomb, to identify themselves with their Savior, unlike the men who are hiding. Third, later that afternoon, he appeared to Peter. This is recorded in Luke 24:34 and 1 Corinthians 15:5, where he Peter is referred to by his Aramaic name Cephas. He appeared that afternoon to Peter, early afternoon probably, because point number four, later that afternoon, mid-afternoon, he appears to two disciples who are headed to their uh, probably hometown of Emmaus. Emmaus was a, a northern suburb of Jerusalem, about 15 miles away. And I would assume that they had decided that it was time to uh, get out of Dodge, so to speak, get out of town, go where they would not be found, and they were headed to Emmaus. They were probably discouraged, dejected. They had seen their Lord crucified. All hope was gone. And this stranger appeared to them and spoke to them and asked them what had happened, and they told him. And, and at that time, this stranger, whom they didn't recognize because Jesus veiled his appearance to them, began to walk through the Old Testament, probably starting in Genesis 3.15 in the promise that the Savior would be a seed of the woman, would be a genuine, true human being. And then he would go on through various passages that it would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that it would be of the tribe of Judah, that the royal scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah, and how Jesus was uh, from that tribe and how the Old Testament in uh, Micah uh, 5.2 predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and here Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And so this stranger explained to him the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was a descendant of David through his mother Mary. Uh, other prophecies like from Isaiah 53 that explained that he would go to the cross like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he would open not his mouth and point out that Jesus never uh, opened his mouth until he cried out at 12 noon when darkness fell upon the earth and our sins were imputed to him. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that he was beaten and bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him as the prophet Isaiah explained, and that this was fulfilled as the uh, Roman soldiers scourged him uh, with a cat of nine tails and just literally almost ripped the flesh off his back. Yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't scream out. It wasn't that suffering that was the efficacious suffering. And so then uh, this stranger explained the sign of Jonah once again to the disciples that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, for three days and three nights, so the Messiah would be in the earth for three days and three nights, in the grave for three days and three nights, but then he would be raised from the dead. And he would go through the passages in the Psalms that indicated the resurrection of the Messiah, that he would not suffer corruption in the grave. And by the time they reached Emmaus, these two disciples were beginning to understand that there was not a defeat on the cross other than the defeat of sin, and sin, death, and Satan, but there was indeed real 
victory over sin. And it was at that point that Jesus unveiled himself, and they realized that the one who had been explaining this to him, they had been walking them through the hundred or so Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in their minute details on the cross, on in the life of Christ, that this was indeed the risen, resurrected Savior. And that's found in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Uh, fifth, we learned that in the early evening as the day progressed, then he finally appeared to the ten. He had already appeared uh, to Peter, but now he appears to the ten. And remember, at this time, Thomas isn't with him, doubting Thomas. Thomas was not there. Judas was already had already committed suicide. So about six or seven in the evening, he appears to the ten disciples. This is given in Luke 24, 36 to 43, and in John 20, 19 uh, to 23. Then the sixth appearance is to the eleven disciples. A little later on that evening, he comes back, and now Thomas is there. And in the meantime, Thomas has said, well, I'm not going to believe him until I can put my fingers in the nail prints and put my hand in the wound on his side. And, of course, Jesus then appeared and said, come on, Thomas. You know, feel the nail prints in my hands. Feel the, the wound in my side. And Thomas fell before him, saying, my Lord and my God, recognizing instantly that that Jesus Christ had raised from the dead. Now, several days later, he appeared to seven of the disciples who were by the Sea of Galilee. They had been out fishing, and they came back to the shore for breakfast, and he appeared to them in John 21, 1 to 23. And it was there that he gives his marching orders to the disciples, and specifically Peter, that their job is to feed the sheep. And he says to Peter three times, If you love me, Feed my sheep. And in that interchange, it's absolutely brilliant in the Lord's construction because he shifts back and forth between different words for sheep, indicating different stages of spiritual growth, lambs versus mature sheep. He uses different words for feeding, which uh, are parallel in the passage to the function of a shepherd in taking lambs and adult sheep to the proper pastures for feeding. And this is the job of the pastor is to feed the sheep the Word of God. It's not to go to the hospital and visit them and hold their hand. It's not to get involved in political activism. It's not to uh, uh, go out and raise money for charity. It's not to conduct a social life for the local congregation because Jesus Christ's marching orders to the pastor teacher is to feed the sheep. And it doesn't matter what else a pastor does, the only thing that he will be evaluated on when he stands before the Lord Jesus Christ is, did you feed my sheep? Today we have a world of pastors who are more concerned about building the church rather than feeding the sheep because they don't know how anymore. They have gone to seminaries that have given them one semester of theology, one semester of Greek, two semesters maybe, uh, one semester of Hebrew if that, but they have had a lots of classes on youth programs and conducting singing and administration of the local church and how to do demographic studies to build a church. But they don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know how to, how, how to grow up spiritually because most pastors don't know how to grow spiritually. They can't lead sheep into growing spiritually. And so we have an immature church on the face of the earth today as my good friend Earl Rodmacher now uh, the uh, uh, emeritus chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary has frequently said the problem today isn't, 
is that the church is the world's largest nursery. It's filled with babies. And the nursery workers have no clue how to get them out of diapers. And this is a tremendous indictment on the church today, an indictment on most Christians, because most Christians would rather sit around and dirty their diapers than grow up and act like a mature believer, uh, fully knowledgeable about the Bible and the Word of God and how to trust the Lord and how to advance to spiritual maturity. They just want a God who's going to be a Santa Claus for them and give them whatever it is they want, make them feel good and get those warm fuzzies. And they don't want to take the time to really study and learn the Word of God. But Jesus said that we're to feed His sheep. He would build a church. Today, most pastors are trying to build a church, and they want somebody else to feed the sheep. So the sheep are starving, starving to death and with no spiritual vitality, no spiritual life. After he appeared to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, he then appeared and taught 500 believers at one time. This is the eighth appearance. This is given in 1 Corinthians 15:6. He appeared to 500 believers. So now he's appeared to at least 520 or so. And all it takes to confirm anything under the Mosaic law, even our laws, if two or more witnesses agree, then something is certain. And here we have over 520 witnesses to, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet modern scholars in their profound arrogance say, well, you know, he really didn't rise from the dead. That was just a myth. See, this is nothing more than pseudo-scholarship, uh, hostile to Christianity, attacking Christianity in the name of Christianity. It's nothing more than pure humanistic religion, and yet you can turn on the television and watch these uh, men with their doctorates and their uh, religious degrees and their positions in various uh, liberal schools and all they can do is attack the foundation of the very faith they claim to espouse. And this is just a sign of the heresy that uh, characterizes our time. Rejection of the resurrection of Christ. Point number nine, he also appeared to members of his immediate family. He appeared to members of his immediate family. It's interesting, Jesus had various brothers and sisters, the Scripture says. We know of Jude, we know of James, others are named, but... None of them believed in him or under, accepted him as Messiah before he was, before the resurrection. They probably had a difficult time. I mean, how would you feel if you had an older brother or that did everything right, never sinned? You know, your mother kept saying, why can't you be like your older brother Jesus? He never sinned. You know, he doesn't disobey me. He doesn't do anything wrong. He always works hard. He's a perfect child. Well, he was perfect. And you're expected to live up to that standard? There must have been a lot of resentment from those younger siblings to, toward Jesus. And none of them trusted in him. None of them believed him. It's interesting, though, because it, it seems like the, the whole scenario is such a family affair. John the Baptist is a cousin. John, the, who wrote the, the gospel and the revelation. Uh, John is a cousin. James is a cousin. So you certainly have a certain amount of a nepotism going on in the uh, birth of the kingdom of God and the presentation of the king. But that's, that positive volition in the extended family members didn't uh, apply to his immediate uh, family. Nevertheless, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15.7, passages like Acts 1.14, Galatians 1.19, 
that James became a believer after the resurrection. It changed his life when he saw his brother was now risen from the dead. His other brother Jude also was saved at this point in time. Then there's a tenth appearance of the Lord when he appeared to eleven disciples on a mountain in Galilee. This is described in Matthew 28:16 to 20, which is the context of what is known as the Great Commission. When the Lord Jesus Christ gave them marching orders, and these marching orders were not directed to the disciples alone, but directed to them as the representatives of the entire church. And it is there that they are told that they are to make disciples and baptize. And you always find somebody who comes along and distorts the passage. I read something the other day where somebody said, well, that only applied to the twelve. Well, if you took every single passage... In the New Testament. Now, there are some times when Jesus only addresses the twelve. It's a great uh, interpretive issue in the, in, the, in the Gospels. But if you apply that principle that he's only talking to the twelve every time he talks to the twelve or the eleven, then, um, then nothing applies to the church. You see, Jesus is addressing the disciples and through them, the leaders of the church, that this is the mission of the church, is to make students of the word. And baptism simply reflects there that which was assumed to take place at the moment of conversion. So you're emphasizing two things, which is evangelism, bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for their sins. And this was indicated uh, in the early church through baptism, because baptism is a picture of our uh, immediate identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the physical act of baptism with water, was a picture of the and a type of the spiritual act of baptism by the Holy Spirit, that at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection by the Holy Spirit. And this is known as baptism by the Holy Spirit. Everyone has it who's a believer. It happens at the instant of salvation. And so Jesus Christ gives the marching orders to the Eleven disciples. This becomes a foundation for the mission statement of the church in the church age. That this is our task is to take the gospel to the nations. And it is the New Testament equivalent to the promise to Abraham or the command, literally the command to Abraham in Genesis 12-3 to be a blessing to all people. And it is through the evangelistic ministry of the church in the church age that the blessing mandate of the Abrahamic covenant is brought to fulfillment. Eleventh, the uh, final appearance of the Lord during the intermediate period before Pentecost was at the time of His ascension. This is described in Luke 24, 44-53 and Acts 1, 3-9. Jesus appeared at that time to the eleven, and he gives them their final marching orders that they are to take the gospel into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, that is a reiteration of the Great Commission. And I want you to note that it is the structural marker for the book of Acts. See, you get folks who don't know how to study the Bible... And they go to passage like Matthew 28 and say, well, that was only for the disciples. 
But you see, Jesus says the same thing to the disciples in, in Acts 1.8. And he says that they are to take the gospel. They are to go into Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. And that is the structure of the whole book of, of uh, Acts. If you understand Acts 1.8, you understand the whole book of Acts. And what you see is the disciples and apostles uh, operating to give the gospel in Jerusalem in, in the first part of Acts, Acts 1 through uh, 5 or 6. And then at that point, there's persecution and because they don't want to go out. They're not, they're not fulfilling the command of Acts 1.8. And... Um, they're staying in Jerusalem, so persecution comes on them in Jerusalem, and they have to scatter. And what happens? What's the focus when they scatter? You see Philip going to Samaria, you see Philip going down to uh, uh, Egypt, where he on the or, excuse me on the Gaza road, where he uh, gives a gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. But Philip is not a disciple. Yet it's Philip who is emphasized in the text, as well as Stephen and some of the others who are carrying out that mandate. And the point I'm making is if Matthew 28, 19, and 20 and Acts 1, 8 were only for the 11 disciples, then Luke really doesn't know what he's talking about because Luke is using examples throughout the book of Acts of others who are fulfilling that mandate. Timothy, Titus, Paul fulfill that mandate. They weren't there. In Matthew 28, they weren't there on the day of the ascension. This is how you do Bible study, is you look at how the writers of Scripture explain these things. And um, the other note is that all of these baptize, not just the disciples. Stephen baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. Others are doing Paul baptized. Uh, others did, did baptism. So if Matthew 28, 19, and 20 was only for the disciples, only for those who were in his immediate hearing, then when Luke tries to show its outworking in Luke, then he, he doesn't know how to do it because he focused on people other than the 11. And just an example of how, how people today don't know how to do Bible study, and they usually come to the text with some preconceived agenda and try to ram, cram, and jam uh, the Bible into this preconceived uh, notion. So their, their preconceived agenda. It's just what I call ram, cram, and jam hermeneutics. Let's not preach the text. Let's preach our doctrine or our theology. So, point number 11, Jesus' final appearance in that intermediate period between the Pentecost and time of his ascension is there in Acts 1, 3 through 9. The remainder of the resurrection appearances are all post-ascension, and they involve a temporary departure from the right hand of the Father. Because Jesus ascended through the heavens, as we've studied, to the right hand of God the Father. His twelfth appearance is to the first martyr in the church, who is Stephen. And this is given in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. And it is there that as Peter, I mean, as Stephen is being stoned, that he is filled with the Spirit, verse 55, gazed into heaven, and God pulls back the veil. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, Jesus is pictured here as standing because he is receiving Stephen into heaven. He is still, quote, seated as a technical aspect referring to his session, but he is pictured as standing in the reception of Stephen. Thirteenth, the most famous post-ascension appearance of Jesus was to the Apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus. And once again, this is not 
uh, Paul just having a vision. He's not just having a hallucination, as my Western Civ professor tried to teach us in uh, my freshman Western Civ class in, in uh, college many years ago. But this is a this is an objective appearance. His associates didn't see Jesus. They didn't hear the specific words, but they saw the bright light and they heard the sound of his voice. This indicates it's an objective appearance, but they weren't supposed to hear the words. And they, Jesus wasn't appearing to them, so they didn't see the specifics, but they, they saw something. Now, if Peter's just having a dream or hallucination, nobody else would see anything. So the fact that others saw something and heard something indicates that it was an objective reality. This is described uh, by Paul in Acts 9, 3 through 6, and he describes it after the event in both Acts 22, 6 to 11, and Acts 26, 13 through 18. Point number 14. He, Jesus then appeared after this to Paul in Arabia. After Paul was saved, he... Uh, he went to Damascus, uh, told them what had happened, that he had become saved. He went back to Jerusalem like a young convert. He was a little overenthusiastic. It's always interesting that after, it says in the text that, that after he left Jerusalem, there was peace in Jerusalem. You know, I just pictured, you know, Paul is just so, so he's just been so hyper about his support for Judaism. They just shifted that to Christianity, and he's just... Uh, just an overenthusiastic convert with no content. And so God took him out into Arabia, and there the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and taught him. This is explained in Acts 20, verse 34, Acts 26, 17, Galatians 1, 12, and 17. Fifteenth, he appeared to Paul a third time in the temple. Uh, this is described in Acts 22:17 to 21. He appeared to Paul a third time in the temple where he is commissioning Paul as, a, as an apostle. And 16th, he appeared to Paul a fourth time when Paul was in prison in Acts 23:11. So four times he has a post-ascension uh, appearance to the apostle Paul. And then the 17th and the final appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ was to John on the island of Patmos, where he commissions him to write the things that he sees. And it is this appearance that is described in Revelation chapter 1. He is to write the things that he sees. This is the last time that Jesus Christ appeared in history. Uh, it's the, after the close of the canon, there was no longer a reason for him to appear. So whenever you hear somebody having some vision of Jesus... Well, my question is, well, what were they smoking? What were they drinking? Or were they like me? I remember one time in college, my roommate and I got double jalapeno pizzas. We had unusual dreams that night. So I often wonder what happened. Because the Bible's clear that Christophanies were rare. The only people to whom Jesus appeared after the ascension were the, were the apostles or Stephen, as he's in heaven. But in terms of appearances on the earth, you have Paul and John, and that's it. He doesn't appear to a lot of people. He doesn't appear to non-apostles. So where do people get this idea that, that he's going to appear to every one of us, and this is something we ought to expect? Well, that's just not biblical. It's mysticism. You get that from pagan religions, but you don't get that from the Bible. 
So we have to stick with what the Scripture says. Well, the purpose for his appearing to John is to commission him to write this final revelation that will show what Jesus is doing in his judgments on the church, which are revealed in the seven letters to the seven churches, and then his final future judgment when the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God is poured out upon sinful humanity during that final seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. It's yet future. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, at this point you won't go through it because we will be taken out. Thessalonians says that He will return in the clouds and those who are dead in Christ will raise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and thus we shall be forever with the Lord. Throughout the New Testament we are to anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ for the church. But if the tribulation is to come before that, then we would be looking for the Antichrist. We would be looking for the uh, the battle of Armageddon, these great end times events described in Revelation. But we are here to look forward to the blessed hope, the coming of our Lord and Savior for us at the rapture. To guarantee that you go through the tribulation and the world's uh, most incredible time of violence and war is simply to reject that Christ died for you. But if you believe in Him, then when the Lord returns at the rapture, you will be abs- you will be taken to be with Him. If you die first physically, then you will receive your resurrection body. If we're still alive, then we'll be instantly with Him, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this morning to be challenged by the historical reality of our Lord's 17 post-resurrection appearances. This is not just some mystical idea, some spiritual appearance that uh, was dreamed up by the apostles, but that there was solid verification. There were witnesses. There was evidence. There were over 500 who saw the Lord Jesus Christ. That what you do in space-time history is not subjective but objective and that we have a Savior who conquered sin and death. We have a Savior who paid the penalty for our sins. We have, a, we have a Savior who will come for us in the clouds, and we will be taken to be with Him, and thus we shall ever be with our Lord. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of church membership. It's not a matter of your morality. It's not a matter of what you've done or what you haven't done. It's simply a matter of faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that He died as a substitute for you on the cross. He paid your sins on the cross, and you are trusting in Him alone. At that instant, the Bible says you're regenerate. You become born again. You are... You receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness so that you are declared just. Therefore, it's not that you won't ever sin again. You still have a sin nature, but you are just in the eyes of God and you have eternal life. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for your word that reveals these things to us. We thank you for your grace. And we ask that you challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.